Welcome to Hope Chapel's Sermon Podcast. We hope that you are encouraged by this teaching from God's Word. Due to the COVID-19 pandemic, we are not currently meeting for in-person services, but we would love to have you join us for our live stream at hopechapel.org forward slash live. We stream every Sunday morning at 9 and 11 a.m. Pacific Time. Good morning, people of Hope Chapel. I hope you're all well and that you have been able to arrange your various streaming formats and uh, bribed your kids into being quiet for a little bit. I hope that this morning goes well. We're going to continue in our study of 1 Corinthians today, 1 Corinthians 15. So if you can open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 15, verse 35, uh, and we'll read all the way up through verse 49 together. Paul speaking to the Corinthians, but someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? You foolish person, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen and to each kind of seed its own body. For not all flesh is the same flesh, but there is one kind for humans, another kind for animals, another for birds and another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind and the glory of the earth, uh, earthly is of another. There is one glory of the sun and another glory of the moon and another glory of the stars for stars differ from star and glory. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness It is raised in power. It's sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. Sorry, uh, the last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural and then the spiritual. The first man was from earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as if we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. Amen. So Paul is discussing uh, death and resurrection throughout the entire chapter, uh, 1 Corinthians 15. Um, And uh, kind of one of the things that's happening is that the various misunderstandings of life and death and resurrection in the hearts and the minds of the Corinthians is being revealed. Uh, I, I've been thinking recently about funerals, um, and I know many of you have been to funerals, either recently or in your lives, and one of the, even though funerals are sad events, one of the interesting things about funerals is even the uh, most refined theologian, if they have a weird view about death or the afterlife, it's going to come out at a funeral been at lots of funerals where someone who I had always considered to be a faithful uh, student of the Bible will say something like, oh yeah, I saw uh, a new star rise in the sky last night and I knew it was just this person who had passed away. And we all hear that and we're like, "Eh, that doesn't sound right. But funerals are not the time to stand up in the back of the funeral and scream like, heresy! It's not contextually appropriate. (laughs) Paul is addressing some of these misunderstandings that have kind of popped out in the way that the Corinthians have thought about death and resurrection. 
And he's very specific about what the problem is. A few verses earlier in this chapter, we read Paul say this um, in chapter 15, verse 12. Uh, Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. What's happened is there are members of the Corinthian church who no longer or have never really believed that the dead would be raised, that the people who had died and been buried would be raised back to, uh, to physical bodies. And one of the reasons why Paul is addressing this is This misbelief in the resurrection isn't like a third order theological issue. It's not a small problem in their theology. It's not like a slight kink in their thinking. It is fundamental to Christian hope. The overarching argument of the entire chapter of the uh, 15, uh, the the entire uh, chapter uh, that is about resurrection is that we believe that Jesus was raised from the dead so we can be sure that we will be raised. Those who have called on the name of Jesus will be raised from the dead at the end. These two uh, moments in history, Jesus' resurrection and our resurrection, they form the two ends of this corridor of hope that Christians live in. We can rest in what has already happened with Jesus and we can hope in what is going to happen for us. Now, there's a reason, I think, that members of the Corinthian church no longer or never really believed in the resurrection, why they were disbelieving in it. And it has to do with notions they would have had about life and death in the afterlife that come from their Greco-Roman pagan backgrounds. Paul is repeatedly throughout this letter trying to get the Corinthians, particularly those who are uh, pagans, to extricate themselves from their views of the world from before they became believers. The pagan view of the afterlife was pretty simply this. You died and you, you shed your mortal body, this shell, this physical existence, and you would go off and you would live in this non-physical ghostly world forever. People didn't come back from the dead. There was no concept that helped them to understand the physical resurrection of anyone. They had a way of thinking about the world. They had a set of beliefs. And you may remember Zach last week talking about wrong beliefs lead to wrong behavior. And that's what's happening here. They didn't believe the bodies were important. They didn't believe the bodies could be raised. So therefore what they did with their bodies in this present time wasn't very important. The idea of a worldview or a philosophy or what might be called like a social imaginary, how we envision the world around us. Uh, and then that, that worldview changing what we think about the Bible is an ever-present danger. It was happening with the Corinthians, but it happens with us today. It is easy for some other narrative about existence what the most important things are, what future hope is, what right and wrong is, where we came from, they can shape, unfortunately, the way that we think about the world uh, as we should. They can influence us. I I mean, I I struggle with this. All of us are dealing with this all the time. If you came to faith late in life, you might be thinking of all these different things that you thought were true, but now because you came to faith, no, aren't true, but sometimes you still kind of believe those things. And even those who don't struggle with that, other various sources of ideas and and knowledge and wisdom can over time influence the way we think about the world and change some of our fundamental views. 
Happens to all of us. I see it happen uh, when people watch certain news outlets too much. I see it happen when people are too invested and in love with political candidates. I see it happen when people associate themselves with various movements and hobbies and suddenly those ways of viewing the world supersede the Christian way of viewing the world and that's when we get into trouble. The Christian story is this. We were created in the image of God. We fell because of humankind's sin. We were redeemed at the cross because of Jesus' work. And even though we will die, those who have called on the name of Jesus will be raised in the end to new glorified bodies. That's our story, and we should safeguard it. And as we allow other forms of wisdom to inform the way that we think in certain ways, we should never allow those forms of wisdom, whatever they are, no matter how good we think they are, to supersede what the Bible tells us is true about the world, about us, about God, and about our future. So Paul is addressing this. He kind of handles three categories. And the first category is resurrection and creation. And really what Paul's communicating in this section is that resurrection is an act of God. Resurrection is an act of God. Read with me again uh, verses 35 through 41. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? You foolish person. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen. And to each kind of seed its own body, for not all flesh is the same flesh, but there is one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind and the glory of the earthly is of another. There is one glory for the sun, another glory for the moon, and another glory of the stars, for star differs from star in glory. Now, I know when we first read this passage, we're like, oh, what exactly is Paul trying to communicate here? Paul is making use of this rhetoric device that was common at the time called a diatribe. What he's doing is he's voicing the objections that have been leveled by those at the church at Corinth don't agree with him. And he, he says these two questions. Says, Some will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? I think it's important for us to understand that when Paul voices these supposed questions from those who were at Corinth, the questions that they had were not genuine questions in earnest. They weren't actually asking Paul to explain it to them. They were saying, I don't think you can answer this question. Therefore, because you can't, the resurrection cannot possibly be true. So Paul answers them and he answers them really, really intensely. They're asking, how? How is it possible that a body could be raised from the dead? Jesus was asked similar questions. We can go to Matthew 22 uh, when the Sadducees approached Jesus. Uh, the same day, Sadducees came to him who say that there is no resurrection. Same belief problem. And they asked him a question. Saying, teacher, Moses said, if a man dies having no children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers among us. The first married and died and having no offspring left his wife to his brother. So to the second, third, down to the seventh. After them all, the woman died. In the resurrection, therefore, at the se of the seven, whose wife will she be? For they all had her. But Jesus answered them, you are wrong. 
because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. In both of these cases, people who don't believe in the resurrection consider a scenario about the resurrection. How is it possible? In what way would it work? Here's maybe a problem with resurrection. They bring it before the teacher and they say, listen, I can't solve this problem. How is it possible the resurrection is true? And both Jesus and Paul answer with, you guys are way off. Jesus says, you don't know the power or the word of God. And Paul, slightly less verbose, basically says, you guys are, are really dumb. You guys are really, really dumb. It's a great way to win arguments on Facebook. If you have a problem, just begin the way Paul does. You are very dumb. Let me show you why. Just kidding. Don't act that way on Facebook. They have a soul body misunderstanding. That's the problem that the Corinthians have. They have a soul and body misunderstanding. The Corinthians some of them at least, believed that you were your soul and you were imprisoned in a physical body. And when you died, the body would be shed and your soul would go off to live this ghostly existence. The body wasn't important. It actually was inhibiting your ability to live life to the fullest. And death was an escape from that physical body. Bodies don't come back to life. That's ridiculous. They go into the ground. They decay. That's what bodies do. And that's what the Corinthians thought was the case. Here's the thing. So many Christians today also believe this to be the case. I see it all the time. People say, I'm going to die and then my spirit will go off and live with God in heaven in this otherworldly, non-physical existence forever. And I hear that and go, I don't, that doesn't seem great to me. That doesn't seem like something my heart really, really, really desires. Here's what I was going to say. I want to just pause for a moment and, and, and tell you what the orthodox historic Christian belief is. Because I actually think um, modern Christianity and, and particularly I think Western American Christianity has veered away from the classical belief about life after death. Christianity has always taught this. When believers die, their soul goes to be with the Lord in the meantime. But at the end, when Jesus returns... When he establishes the new heaven and the new earth, when he reigns perfectly over everyone and everything, the dead will be raised to new glorified bodies. Believers, you will get your body back. That's what Christianity has always taught. So the Corinthians were wrong, and many of us today are wrong about that notion. Now, here's this thing. We all know that bodies decay over time. So what happens is when I talk to people about the issue of resurrection, I always get questions kind of in this general world. I get a question like, well, listen, you put a body in the ground and, you know, a thousand years goes by and it just decays like down to just almost nothing, to dust. Can, can, the, can the Lord raise that body? And I think most of us would say, yeah, I, I think so. It may, makes sense. They say, well, what about someone who was cremated? And, and people feel less sure. But no, the Lord can raise someone who was cremated. And then I get... Um, weirder questions. And I'm going to give you a, a real one I got. Uh, let's say I go swimming and a shark eats me. And then my body, because it's digested by the shark, becomes part of the shark's body. And I'm like, go on. All right. And, and then that shark, it gets caught and delivered to a seafood restaurant. And other people eat that shark's body, which has some of my body in it. And it becomes part of their body. And I'm like, okay, okay. And the thing is, I get a lot of questions like this. I want to point out, though, these are the same sorts of questions that the church at Corinth was asking. They are how questions. I think they're natural questions, but they're how questions. I don't fully see how God could raise 
a body, the science doesn't really make sense to me, the mechanics of it doesn't really make sense to me, and in even weirder situations, conceptually it's kind of hard. These questions, they're missing the point. They're asking the how question. Paul uses the analogy of a seed. He says, you take a seed, seems dead, you put it into the ground, and eventually a, a plant sprouts from that seed. The plant came from the seed. There is a through line, a continuity between the seed and the plant. The plant looks a little different than the seed. The seed looks different from the plant, but we all agree it's the self-same organism. The seed becomes the plant, even though it seemed dead. The Lord gives that seed growth. And then, then he expands on that analogy by talking about the different sorts of bodies. And I think when people read this passage for the first time or after having not read it for a long time, this is where they begin to get a little bit lost. Here's what Paul says, beginning in verse 39. For not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind for humans, another kind for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind and the glory of the earthly is of another. There is one glory of the sun and another glory of the moon and another glory of the stars, for star differs from star in glory. Paul begins to say things like this. The seed is buried and the Lord grants the seed a body and the Lord grants everything a body in the universe. And these bodies the Lord gives to things they're designed for the context in which that body lives. Different bodies for different contexts. The Lord gives a fish gills and fins because it is meant to swim in the water. The Lord gives a bird wings and hollow bones because it is meant to fly through the air. The Lord has sovereignly granted the sort of body an organism needs to live in either the part of the world or the type of world that it is meant to live in. Paul, what he's doing is he's drawing on the theology of God's design. He's like, you believe that God created the world, that he in power spoke it into existence. There was nothing and God created the heavens and the earth. He formed them and he organized them and he shaped them. And Paul is even drawing on the various categories, fish, birds, animals, human beings, stars, moon, sun, that Genesis deals with. And he's talking through the fact that God has graciously ordained individual organisms, whether it's a human being or a bird or a fish or a plant, to have the body that it needs to live in the sort of world that it lives in. And he's saying, if you can believe God did that all the first time, certainly you should be able to believe that God is going to do it the second time. That as he remakes creation, he will endow things with the bodies that they need to live in that new creation. He's like, you're asking the wrong question. It's not how exactly. We actually don't have the answer to that. Not for the most part. You should be asking the who question. I'm going to give you an example. When I was like 18, uh, my appendix uh, rebelled against me. It attacked me and it tried to kill me. And it was uh, a fair amount of pain. I don't handle pain super well. Uh, some people are much, much better at handling pain. And I remember I went to the doctor and they kind of figured out what it was. It, they needed to like, you know, remove my appendix, take one of my organs away from me. And um, here's what offered me no comfort. 
when the nurses are explaining, the various medical professionals, they're explaining, listen, what they're going to do is they're going to make three incisions in your abdomen. They're going to take this like camera and put it in one way. And they're going to take scissors and put it in the other. We're going to do a laparoscopic appendectomy. That offers me no comfort at all. I'm like, I don't really want the details. I don't want you to work through the tools and the procedures. Here's what offered me comfort. When the doctor comes in, he looks at me and he says, listen, I have done this operation 10,000 times and I've never messed up. That, that offers me comfort. Not a how question, a who question. Now here's the thing, I realize that not all situations have good outcomes with various medical procedures. The point I'm trying to make is, when I realized the person who was doing the procedure was competent, knew what he was doing, that offered me more comfort than knowing the ins and outs of how the procedure was done. Believers, we should trust in the fact that resurrection is an act of God. That he spoke all the world into creation. And it's not super important that we understand all the mechanics, but instead believe that he will do what he says he's going to do and he's capable to do it because of who he is. That is a reason to hope in the resurrection. It is an act of God. Secondly, Paul begins to talk about resurrection and transformation and he communicates to us that it is a glorious improvement. Read with me verses 42 through 44. So is it with the resurrection of the dead. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. If in the last few verses, Paul is beginning to draw continuity between our bodies now and our bodies then, here he is going to describe discontinuity. He's going to explain some ways that our bodies then will not be like our bodies now. One of the important things to know from the very beginning, though, is in both cases, we have bodies. One of the concerns that the Corinthians would have certainly had is like how weird and gross would our bodies be if they were raised back to life? We actually see an example of this uh, in the Gospel of John. We can go to John 11 when when Jesus goes to raise his friend Lazarus and he's about to take the stone away. So Jesus said, take away the stone. And Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor for he has been dead four days. Martha is having a hard time understanding what it would mean for Lazarus to be raised back to life. She's like, hey, listen, he's been in there four days. It's not going to smell very good. It's going to be gross. And that's certainly what many of the Corinthians would have thought as well. They would think, I don't really want my body to be raised. I've seen what happens to bodies. I'm aware of what happens to bodies. That does not sound good to me. So Paul is seeking here to make the resurrection body to make the idea of our bodies coming back to life, being raised, move from appalling to appealing in the minds of those who are listening. And he he does it um, really with with four different understandings or descriptions of what the resurrected body would be. He's trying to offer the Corinthians a full picture of the resurrection. Because here's what's important. The resurrection is the return to consciousness, but it's more than that. It is the raising of a physical body, but it's more than that. It's 
the raising of a glorious body, but it's more than that. It's the raising of a glorious body in the perfect kingdom of the new heavens and the new earth that is perfectly reigned by the Lord Jesus. It's a glorified body for a glorified existence and a glorified kingdom. So Paul is going to describe to us what those bodies are going to be like in the limited way that us who are on this side of the resurrection can understand. First, he describes the contrast of perishable and imperishable. He says, what is sown is perishable, what is raised is imperishable. Essentially, the idea is this, what is sown dies, what is raised will not die. As a society, although all of us or most of us who are listening today have personally experienced the death of someone who is close to us, in general, we do not see a great deal of death. We relegate the handling of the circumstances around death to medical professionals, to morticians, to cemetery workers. And for the most part, our life is not confronted with the reality of death on a regular basis. However, we're all keenly aware of its existence. We don't think about it all the time, but we know that it is a non-negotiable. The consequences of sin is death for all human beings. We are all going to die. There are a lot of uh, various wellness and, and, and health programs that people want you to get on, eat this sort of food, do this sort of exercise, take these sort of supplements, like, I don't know, essential oils, maybe that's one. Hope I'm not defending anyone here when I say that. The, the point being various wellness strategies and, 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 um, and techniques, uh, none of them say do this wellness technique and you will never die. <laughs> none of them say that. They all say, do this technique and you might live a little bit longer and a little bit better. But if anyone came to you and said, if you just take these pills, you will not die, you would assume that they're either crazy or a liar. We know death is imminent. We know that it is coming. It looms as a threat over all human beings. Lazarus, who we just talked about, he died and he was raised by Jesus. And because that was not the future resurrection for the end, Lazarus, he died again. He'll be raised again, but he died again. Paul is saying, right now we live under the looming threat of death. We know it is a non-negotiable for all of us. However, what is raised will be imperishable. When we are raised at the end, we will not die again. Believers, that is the hope you should cling to. Not any of the other things that might excite your imagination, not particular news outlets, not particular candidates, not particular ways of living outside of Christianity. Your hope, the thing you cling to, regardless of how easy or how difficult life is, how boring or how scary is, you will be raised. And the body you'll be raised to will not die again. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. The next contrast that Paul uses to describe our future bodies is dishonor and glory. What is sown in dishonor is raised in glory. There is a sense in which all of us, because we are made in the image of God, the likeness of God, we are meant to reflect the glory of God. However, as I'm sure everyone listening or watching knows, 
we do not very well in many instances in our lives reflect the glory of God. All these different appetites and desires and emotions, they get in the way sometimes of us acting righteously in the way that God acts righteously. We are plagued like we are with the looming threat of death. We are plagued with the presence of sin. Just for a moment, imagine the most upright moral person that you know, just this paragon of virtue. And if right now you're thinking of yourself, please give me a call this week and we'll just have a little phone chat about it. But imagine that person, whoever it is, that person is still carried into eternity, not through their own goodness, but through the mercy of God enabled through the sacrifice of Jesus. The worst sinner, the worst sinner, like Paul who calls himself the worst of sinners, the worst sinner will still be raised in glory if they've called on the name of Jesus. There's a sense in which we are subject to shame and guilt and sin and difficulty in life now. But when we are raised, we will not. We will perfectly reflect the glory of God. The next contrast that Paul uses is the contrast between weakness and strength. Uh, What is sown in weakness is raised in power. This is pretty connected to the perishable, imperishable idea, but essentially it's supposed to just the, the, the bald fact that we're all going to die. In this sense, Paul is saying, listen, not only are we all going to die, it is actually really, really, really easy to die. I feel invincible most of the time. I'm not particularly worried about death. When I drive my car, I'm not worried I'm going to get in a car accident. When I eat food, I'm not worried I'm going to choke. I'm not afraid I'm going to starve to death. I'm not afraid that I'm going to freeze to death. In general, I have all these various backup plans and safety nets that protect me if things start going in the wrong direction. If I run out of food, I can go to the grocery store. Or if I am a little cold, I can, I can put on a jacket. But I've been watching this show recently on Netflix called Alone. And some of you guys have probably seen it. And uh, this show is where they take basically people who are survivor experts, who like know how to survive, a.k.a. not me, someone who knows how to live in the wilderness. They send them out to the Arctic Circle alone. So they're all alone in their own various areas. And they just say, all right, with limited supplies, like really, really limited, survive. And they build shelters and they hunt and they set traps. And what is mind-blowing about this show is how incredibly easy it is for them to lose. So basically, they either think they're going to die, so they call the team in to get them, or the doctors who check up on them day by day think they're going to die, and they make them leave. And the things that make people leave are insane. Day one, there's a guy walking around, just walking. Falls, breaks his leg, boom, out. If I break my leg, I'm not worried I'm going to die. He broke his leg and he's like, well, I'm in the Arctic Circle, not a big safety net, I could die here. Person eats a musk rat, (laughs) uh, because he's hungry, and he gets like dysentery out. Another person uh, slays an elk, which I I can't even understand how someone would be able to do that. With a bow and arrow, slays an elk. Turns out elk don't have enough fat to live off of, so this person's in danger of losing. Someone cuts their finger, just cuts their finger, and they're like, this could be it. This could get infected. This could take me out of the game because there's no safety net of society around. It's amazing how easy it is for humans. If I cut my finger, I put some Neosporin on it. I put a Band-Aid on it. I'm not worried about it. But human beings are fragile. They're really fragile. They can die really, really, really easy. There will be a time when we have new bodies and we will never have to say, I can't go on. 
What is raised or what is sown in weakness is raised in power. We won't be fragile. Lastly, Paul uses one more contrast. And this is the one that most people get hung up on. He says, what is sown a natural body is raised a spiritual body. And this is, has um, influenced, I think, a lot of people's belief about soul and body. Uh, the idea that you're sown a natural body. Our first life is natural. Our second life is spiritual. And we have to, like, just for a moment, get into the Greek for a second. Um, so just bear with me. The two words that Paul uses are psukakon and pneumatikon. These are the two words. And these are the two words we get modern words. For the word psukakon, we get words like psyche and psychology. And pneumatikon, we get words like pneumatics and pneumatology. Essentially, the idea is soul and spirit. Probably a good way to translate this, and every like, commentary is kind of trying to figure out like, what is the best way to translate these words to best communicate what the original authors meant. Probably a good way is to say, what is sown a, a soulish body or a body animated by the soul uh, is raised a spiritual body, a body animated by the spirit. In both cases, they're bodies. They're, they're, they're physical, they're corporeal, they're tangible. To, to put it simply, you could hug a soulish body and you could also hug a spiritual body. When, when we are raised at the end, we will have real bodies. I don't know exactly what they will look like. I don't know exactly what they will be capable of, but I know that we will have them and we will live in a real physical place. The future is physical, not just spiritual. And in this contrast, probably... Um, What's happening is Paul's transitioning to his discussion of, of Adam and Jesus, the, the first and the second Adam. But, but before we get there, probably the best way to understand this contrast is, in some sense, our body today is animated by the soul and is a dwelling for the spirit, but it's not a perfect dwelling for the spirit of God. In the future, the body itself will be animated by the spirit and will be a perfect dwelling for the spirit. And I don't know exactly what that means. I don't know exactly what that entails but I can ensure you, like all of the other contrasts, it will be a good thing. Lastly, Paul moves to resurrection and redemption. So resurrection, it's an act of God. Resurrection, it's a glorious improvement. And resurrection has begun with Jesus. So Paul says God is going to do it. It's going to be good. And his last point, very importantly, is and he's already done it for one person already. Jesus has been raised. Read this. Uh, we're going to begin in verse 45 together. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. And the word living being right here is the same words that Paul uses for natural body, psuchikon. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. So go back to that verse. Just pause for a second. Can you go? Yeah, there we go. All right. Just want to, just want to point out. Remember, we have these two words, psukikon and pneumatikon. Spiritual and the word we use often is soulish. Just, just to remind you where we're at. Okay, go for it. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. Paul is turning his attention to how 
1 Corinthians 15, or he's using 1 Corinthians 15, as an answer for Genesis 3. He is redirecting his discussion to the power of the gospel in which we find salvation and redemption. He's going back to Genesis. He's saying, there was a man of the dust, a man who had a soulish body. That's how he describes Adam. And this man of the dust was formed from the dust. He worked the dust and he went back to the dust when he died. And then he describes the second Adam, who is a man from heaven, who became a life-giving spirit. He's saying the first Adam, he rebelled against God. He sinned against God. And because of that rebellion, the rebellion of Adam and Eve, the world was plunged into a form of decay and rebellion. Death entered the world. Sickness entered the world. Violence entered the world. Things that were not in the world before. But Jesus comes as a second Adam. If the first Adam doomed men to die, the second Adam made it possible for them to be raised. And what's important for us to understand is this. Jesus did not come first with a resurrected body, the pneumaticon, as Paul says. He came first with an unresurrected body, a soulish body, the psuchicon. He was a human being, fully human, fully human. And it was this incarnation of the Son, this fully human Jesus, who became perishable, so that we might have hope of a future in which we would be imperishable. He was subject to shame and dishonor and himself became sin. So that we might have a future in glory. He became weak so that we might be raised strong. He became a soulish body. A fully human person. Who is also fully God. Fully human person. So that in the future we might have spiritual bodies. Paul is saying Jesus became like us so that in the end we might become like him, raised in glory. Believers, listen to this. What God did for Jesus, that is raise him, he will do for you. That's your hope. That's your hope. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your wisdom and the various truths that we have in scripture that they've been given to us that they're meant to be read and studied that they can be a source of joy and hope we thank you that we can have a future uh, that is good we can have a future in which you have uh, sovereignly decided uh, the bodies that we will inhabit I pray that as we live in, in the sort of times we live in now that are scary and, uh, and in many ways, I'm sure we're all sick of these words, uh, unprecedented and uncertain, that you would direct our eyes to the future hope that we have in you. That we would trust you as the one who authored salvation and who will bring us along to the end. We thank you for the sacrifice of your son at the cross. I pray for all those who are watching today that maybe do not yet know Jesus, that you might give them new hearts such they would call upon the name of Jesus so that they can be saved and they can be raised. Pray for our church that you would bless us, that you would preserve us through this time, that you would unify us, that you would give us wisdom. Pray for our society and our, our civil authorities. We pray for the president and the governor and the mayor and anyone else who's in the process of making all kinds of difficult decisions. I pray you incline their hearts to you. Pray that you continue to give us favor with our community. 
Pray all these things in the great name of your son, Jesus. Amen. On behalf of the Hope Chapel family, I'd like to thank you for tuning in to the sermon podcast. If you would like to know more about our church, you can visit www.hopechapel.org.